0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A Tired Grad Student Study Psychology. My name is Nick and I am a second year grad student studying clinical counseling and psychology and I have a big test coming up at the end of the summer. And this podcast is really to help me to study for this test. So um, we're going to pick up actually from the last episode, which was about the Neo-Freudians and it was so long that I just had to cut this into. two. Um, so yeah, uh, this is going to be The Near Freudian's Part 2, so let's dive right in. So then we move on to Eric Erickson. Now, um, one, that's a great name. Eric Erikson. You gotta love it. Erickson had a really interesting upbringing in the psychoanalytic theory. He met Freud's daughter in Vienna while tutoring at the Burlingham Rosenfield School for Children, you know, and at this school for children, he was tutoring, you know, um, pretty rich kids, and their parents actually received uh, psychotherapy from Freud himself, and so Erickson always had an interest in uh, child psychopathology, and, you know, he saw that the parents were being treated by psychoanalytic thought, but not really the children, and so From his encouragement from Anna Freud, he actually began to be trained in psychoanalytic thought, which I thought it was really interesting. In 1933, he fled from Austria to the U.S. um, when the Nazi regime spread across Europe. You know, and uh, there he broadened his interest beyond psychoanalysis. He started working with famous anthropologists like Margaret Mead. You know, and he's really credited for being the first to study ego psychology which really poised that the ego is more than a servant to the id. So instead of saying, you know, the id has all this power and it takes a really strong ego to really tame it, he's like, well, actually the ego probably has a little bit more power than you think. Um, He went on to say that ego identity then, in its subjective aspect, is the awareness of the fact that there is a self-shameness and continuity to the ego's synthesizing methods and a continuity of one's meaning for the other. So Erickson is mostly known for his theory of development. He departed from Freud's view that personality development is fixed uh, by puberty. So remember the last stage genital was starting at puberty and then just lasted until you died. And he really went against that. He developed eight stages of psychosocial development. You know, in this, he emphasized the social relationships that are needed in each stage of development without placing an emphasis on sexual urges like Freud did. Now, he showed that each stage represents a developmental task. The sense of self actualization or competence depends on the successful completion. Of each stage and I go through each stage and I, and I sort of list a question that sort of encapsulates that. So his first stage was trust versus mistrust. You know, this is from ages uh, zero, so infant, to one and a half years old, give or take. And all these, you can probably find a little bit of variance in the ages, but this is probably the, the best bet. And the question that you may ask in this stage is, can I trust that my basic needs are met? You know, so if the infant feels secure and had secure attachment to the caregiver, they would develop less anxiety, would be trusting of the caregiver, i.e. mom or dad, and they develop the virtue of hope. And there's a lot of good research on th- attachment theory that I think I might do a special episode on, i.e., you know, Bowlby, Ainsworth, they did such a good job with really talking about attachment and Harry Harlow as well, you know, and I think it's, it's worth mentioning. Now, the next one is autonomy versus shame and doubt, you know, and this is from ages one and a half to three question that people may ask is, internally, unconsciously, can I be my own person or will I be dependent on my caregiver? Now, so if kids are criticized and not given the support to prove themselves, uh, they may be feeling inadequate and develop a low self-esteem, whereas if they're not criticized, they may start to tolerate failure. They may ask for assistance. You know, Erickson really encouraged parents to encourage their child to become more independent. Next we have uh, initiative versus guilt. Uh, This is from ages 3 to 5. The big question is, am I able to initiate with other children? This is the age where uh, you see kids starting to talk with other kids, form relationships, form friendships, and uh, we see that in this stage. You know, so if the child is able to ask friends to play or, you know, play with blocks or play hang go seek then, and if that child then accepts that, uh, the child develops a sense of security and feels the ability to lead others. On the other side though, if that invitation is not well received, then the child sense, uh, develops a sense of guilt. Will not initiate as much further on. You know, this develops the virtue of purpose. The next stage is industry versus inferiority. And now, and this is asking the question Am I competent to know what is being taught to me? So, this is ages 5 to 12, and you sort of start seeing a pattern here that that's around the school age time when they start school. And if the child is reinforced by their industriousness, they develop some sort of confidence that reaffirms their self-esteem. Whereas if they don't, they begin to feel inferior and even doubt their own ability. You know, and this develops uh, competence. Uh, The fifth stage is identity versus inferiority. This is a very common one, a very popular one. You know, it asks the question, the age-old question, Am I my own person, or who am I? You know, this is sort of the age-old question, and that makes sense because the ages of this are 12 to 18, and sort of that coming-of-age type. Erickson said that this is the transition between adulthood and childhood. You know, he quoted that the adolescent mind is essentially a mind or a moratorium, a psychological stage between childhood and adulthood, and between the morality by the child, and the ethics to be developed by the adult. You start off a base age of knowing morality, and then you start knowing more intense things, quote-unquote, of, you know, ethical development, and it's pretty um, fascinating to think about. You know, and according to Erickson, there are two identities that are involved with this. It's sexual and occupational. Well, I know a lot of you cringe at that, but it's not focusing a lot on sex, it's just the development of a sexual identity at that age. If they're not able to make sense of their identity in society, then this can lead to role confusion. This is the confusion about the adolescent and their place in society, and this also leads to an identity crisis. If they're not able to meet that goal, they're going to have an identity crisis, and they may, you know, do some experimenting then with the different lifestyles to sort of fit in with what they feel like they belong in in society. And so if they succeed, they will it will lead to virtue, fidelity, you know, or the ability to accept others, even when there may be differences among them. The next one is intimacy versus isolation. This is ages 19 through 29. We're starting to broaden the age now. And the question is, can I find someone to love? Now, successful completion leads to happy relationships and a sense of commitment. The opposite leads to fearing commitment and leads to isolation and loneliness, you know, and it develops the virtue of love. This is an important uh, stage to be in, too, you know, identity versus inferiority and intimacy versus isolation are really important and I think it's good to I think it's good that Erickson focused on these things too because remember Freud would have stopped at industry versus inferiority he would have stopped at the question of am I competent to know what's being taught to me but uh, Erickson took that a step further and introduced those last two that we talked about and the next two that we're going to talk about so the seventh one is Uh, generativity versus stagnation. This is ages 30 to 64. And the question is, am I able to support my family and give back to society? Successful completion leads to feelings of usefulness, whereas the opposite leads to stagnation and feeling unproductive. And this develops the virtue of care. And finally, we have integrity versus despair. And this is 65 years or older. And the last question is Can I leave a legacy? You know, Erickson believed that if we see our lives as unproductive, as dissatisfied, you know, we live with this developing despair. Whereas if we have success in this, uh, we develop a virtue of wisdom. You know, it helps someone to make sense of their lives and it helps them to get a sense of closure and completeness. And this actually leads someone in his mind to accept death without fear, if you can successfully go through this stage of sort of answering that question. So I have some thoughts on this. You know, the first one is uh, the bad is it's pretty vague. Eric um, Erickson is pretty vague on each stage. You know, how does uh, one psychosocial social stage affect the other too? You know, and let's say um, I'm I'm good all the way up into autonomy versus shame and doubt does would that affect me in um the identity versus inferiority stage you know and I, I don't think that's been said yet i'd like to know though if you if you know of it please let me know but the good is it's lifelong it's uh you're developing this sense of identity which i think it's pretty common knowledge too that yeah we do develop identity throughout our lives not just in the first couple of years of our life Finally we have Karen Horney. She's also one of my favorite psychoanalysts. She has a lot of cool stuff to say as well. She got her medical degree in 1913 and sadly after losing her first child and both her parents in the span of one year, Horney turned to psychoanalysis to sort of help her cope and she saw Carl Abraham, which remember, he was part of the committee back in what we earlier talked about in the Vienna Psychoanalyst uh, Society, so that's a full circle there. In 1920, Horney became a founding member of the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute, so she brought what she learned all the way over to Berlin from Vienna, and there she taught classes, conducted research, and saw patients herself. But uh, sadly, when the Nazis started invading Europe, she moved to Brooklyn, where a lot of people who fled the Nazi regime lived in Brooklyn as well, and and actually her practice thrived from that. You know, unlike many other neo-Freudians, she departed from Freud mainly because of his views on sex, more specifically, uh, penis envy. Remember that penis envy was uh, what, you know, girls, women have because they are jealous and envious of their lack of penis, that's what Freud said. Uh, She would later come back and say, you know, actually, um, no, men have womb envy, which uh, occurs just as much in men. She would say that men feel envious about the lack of womb or the lack of the ability to give birth to a child and to breastfeed. You know, she she went all the way 180 with that. More importantly, though, uh, that's pretty uh, a funny aside, but more importantly, she contributed a lot of just great, great stuff. I, I really enjoyed the stuff that she contributed, mostly on the theory of neurosis slash basic uh, anxiety and the theory of self. So the theory of neurosis goes like this. She would say that neurosis is the psychic disturbance brought on by fears and defense against these fears and by attempts to find compromised solutions for conflicting tendencies. So it's really this idea of you have fears and the behaviors to sort of counteract those fears become sort of like pathological. And, and to go a little bit further to, you know, it's the inability to adapt and overuse it's the overuse of negative thoughts as well and behaviors it was a diagnosis um, neurosis was back in the 1600s and 1700s but it's not really a diagnosis anymore we want to diagnose someone today with neurosis but we would use it as a way to describe behavior more specifically to depression anxiety and stress now so neurotic needs this theory of neurosis can lead to aggressive behavior it causes people to withdraw socially, and it really um, ends up, you know, becoming people-pleasing as well. You know, it's also been associated with health issues. It's also related to health issues like heart problems and lower immune systems. Knowing all these things, it's important to know how you rate in neuroticism, and we rate this basically on a scale of high to low. Are you high in neuroticism? Are you low in neuroticism? We really have to understand how this. Uh, can affect your thoughts and behaviors. So Hornay says that um, basic anxiety or neurotic needs can result from you know too much isolation, too much admiration, not enough uh, responsibility, too much responsibility, and the lack of respect and the lack of warmth. So basically Juan I was suggesting that there are different styles of coping with unconscious or basic anxiety. Each neurotic need can be grouped into three categories. Uh, you have moving toward people, you have moving against people, and you have moving away from people. These people tend to utilize two or more of these needs, which creates confusion and inner turmoil. You know, Harnay says that people who are neurotic tend to overuse uh, these strategies. We can also break down these three coping strategies into different neurotic needs. And um, here they are, you know, moving toward people. Is, it causes people to seek affirmation and acceptance. And they often perc- they are often perceived as clingy and needy. And their neurotic needs are, you know, the need for affection and approval. And uh, the desire to be liked, the need for a partner. Uh, these individuals sometimes think it is more important to have a partner to resolve every problem that they have. You know, the next need is the need for social recognition. This is another one that Karen would say uh, it moves towards someone. Uh, the needs for social recognition so their the desire to be in the limelight and the final one for this group is the need for personal admiration and uh, they just want all qualities to be valued now the second group is called moving against people You know this causes people to seek hostility and to be antisocial, and they're usually described as cold and indifferent you know they have a need for power Uh, And they usually praise strength and despise weakness. There's also another need, a neurotic need, which is the need to exploit others. And they view this as uh, a way to gain power. They will exploit others to obtain power, money, and sex. And we probably know a lot of people (laughs) like that, you know, on the news. Um, But that's a a neurotic need of someone. And obviously in the name, it, it moves them against someone. And the final one is the moving away from people. So this causes someone to feel a need of control, and they are often difficult to work with and are often unkind to others. You know, and so the neurotic needs of this group is the need for personal achievement. Because of their insecurity, these people push themselves to the limit. There is a need for self-sufficiency and independence, and this uh, presents a loner personality, someone who is just wants to be alone all the time. The next need is called the need for protection, or sorry, the need for perfection, and this strives for unobtainable perfection. They continually search for personal flaws, to improve upon, and uh, the last one is the need to restrict one's life. These people prefer to go unnoticed. They often make their needs secondary and undervalue themselves. So those are their neurotic needs, and I'm probably going to reiterate this a lot. But when we talk about a psychological thought and theory, it's just a way to understand how we tick, you know. And this is one of them. Um, I think Karen Horney is has a really good idea's about neuroticism. You now, and finally, we have the theory of the self, and I'm gonna be completely honest here. I love this theory. I think this is one of the best theories that we have on depression, anxiety, it's just a really good way and a really simple way to think about these things. So Karen Horne I really agreed with Abraham Maslow. Um, she said that we all strive for self-actualization, for realization that all of our needs need to be met. Karen Horne I had really two um, ideas or views of this. She had the real self, quote-unquote, the real self and the ideal self. So what does that mean? So... The real self is someone who we actually are. That's who I am right now. Uh, this is me, um, and this is how who I am. <laughs> uh, so that would be the real self. The ideal self is a model on how we assist the real self in developing and achieving self actualization. So, what does that mean? Well, we have the real self. We we know of these two selves. We know they exist. We have the ideal self and the uh, real self. So think about uh, two circles like a Venn diagram. Think about how two circles overlap with one another. So in a neurotic person's real self and ideal self, if they're far apart, the goals of the ideal self are not realistic and are often impossible. So uh, if they're far apart, really that's the space where anxiety depression and stress live because your your real self is so far away from your ideal self and the real self then turns into what's called the despised self and the neurotic person believes that this is their true self so when they're far apart so think of the two circles being far apart um, you really start to despise yourself because you have unobtainable goals to not meet that ideal self. Uh, and the opposite, if you are, if your real self and your ideal self are close together, then it's much more attainable to get to the ideal self because you have obtainable goals. You are able to get to that step and to be self-actualized. Horn I described um, the opposite of, you know, the far apart. She Described it as the tyranny of the should, you know, in which we we say this all the time I should uh, be like this. I should make good grades on my test. I should be a good student. I should be a good husband. But that is dangerous to just keep on saying should, 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 because it creates sort of a hopelessness for perfection. You know, no matter what your view is, uh, perfection is really hard to obtain and sometimes impossible. We can't be perfect. That's not in the human nature, you know, to be perfect all the time. And so Karen Horn I really had a good idea of just saying, you know, it's not, it's not real to have this ideal self that is perfect, is good height, good weight, good everything. Because then you're just going to despise yourself. But if you have obtainable goals to put forth towards your ideal self then you are able to sort of strive for self-actualization, which again, it's this idea of, you know, knowing who you really are, knowing what your needs are, and really feeling at peace with that. So there you go, those are the the top four psychodynamic theorists, you know, those are there's many more of them, but uh, those are probably the best ones to talk about, you know, and how do we use psychodynamic approach to therapy? Well, again, it's a form of talk therapy that helps patients to understand their thoughts, behaviors, and emotions better. Now, and here's how it works, you know, it asks people to focus on repressed feelings and how the unconscious can be influencing them. So again, that's sort of this metacognition of, okay, how are your thoughts affecting you? You know, and so... It uh, helps you to identify patterns, understand emotions, and improve relationships. It also points that the unconscious mind is inaccessible, sort of like Freud was saying, to the conscious, but can influence the patient. So this is directly from Freud. Freud really set that up for them uh, and said, you know, uh, the unconscious is, uh, you can't really obtain it, you can't really access it, but it's there. And really, the unconscious is influenced by past experiences, uh, i.e. childhood experiences. Now, the Neo-Freudians still believed in the role of the id, the ego, and the superego, but... They, they went along with Freud and said the the battle between the id, ego, and superego is what causes, you know, things like depression, bipolar disorder, stress disorders, you know, all, all of that, you know. And so, you know, and it's important to, again, we talk about research a lot, and it's important to understand that psychologists and therapists today want to use empirically supported treatments and evidence-based practices. And we'll talk about that more later, but it's important to bash on the psychodynamic and psychoanalytic thoughts a lot because it really focuses on the id, the ego, and the superego, which is really hard to study. You know, it's basically saying, hey, trust us. There's these three sort of sub personalities that are in you and you can't access one of them. It's really hard to present to someone, but in one 2017 review of in the American Journal of Psychiatry, you know, researchers found that the psychodynamic therapy wasn't effective or was as effective as other treatments um, that were well known. So they, they put it against C B T, they put it against probably um, ACT at that time Uh, So these therapies that are very well researched, and I think that's important. There's probably going to be some other studies that go against this, so if you are interested in psychodynamic theory, I would just uh, research it out. I think it's probably useful. If you find it useful, then go for it. Uh, That's sort of what my theory is on now, you know. If it's helpful to you to receive this sort of therapy, then go for it. I personally don't agree with it or personally don't think it's as helpful as sort of these other therapies but I'm I'm me I'm Nick I like TBT but go ahead so we have uh, some pros and cons to this approach uh you probably already know what my pros and cons are but I'll just lay them out here pro is you know talk therapy I think talk therapy in place of hypnosis 100 percent I think hypnosis now is, is just not good for you. It doesn't really teach you anything, it just sort of unveils things, um, quote unquote unveils things, and you're not really learning anything from it. Uh, whereas talk therapy can help you to process your own emotions, your own thoughts, and your own behaviors. A better psychodynamic theory better explains the nature versus nurture with Jung's collective unconscious than Freud's did. You know, Freud still believed in the nature versus nurture debate, but... He, again, focused way too much on the childhood experience rather than genetics. Whereas young, remember, the collective unconscious was this unconscious that was passed down through genetics, your genome. You know, and also my last pro is, you know, it brings the role of society into mental health. Think of horn eyes and neurotic needs and how that affected uh, people who you were with. And think of Erickson's development, I mean, that was his psychosocial development. He had theorized about social development over time throughout your whole life instead of just up to puberty. Some of the cons are it focuses way too much on psychological factors instead of genetic factors. I um, mean, yeah, if, uh, Jung had the collective unconscious, and yeah, we talked about genetics a little bit, but... You know, what, from what we know now, genetics plays a huge role in your mental health. Bipolar is basically a genetic disorder at this point. You know, we if your parent has bipolar disorder, there's really a 50-50 chance that you may have it as well. Uh, there's also a little discussion of free will. We're going to talk about that a lot with behaviorism, which will be our next episode. And uh, yeah, they, they talk a little about free will. You have the power to... As, as far as we know today, you have the power to sort of change your own behavior. And the psychoanalytics and the psychodynamics would probably say that's that's not true. It's your uh, unconscious that really is in control of that. Whereas I just don't really see that. Um, we already talked about this, but it's hard to prove because of su- the subjectivity of therapy. Again, you're relying way too much on therapists' own Thoughts and behaviors to sort of sort of interject with their own thoughts on therapy. So let's say a client says on the Rorschach test, Oh, I see a, a horse. And then the therapist would say, Oh, tell me about the horse. Whereas the, it, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it, it's too subjective of a, of a therapy because it relies way too much on the, the therapist's subjectivity than the clients. Whereas I, I think the client subjectivity is much more important than the therapist. And finally, um it's again we talked about this, but it simplifies the mind, um, it's very basic. I just don't as far what we know about science today and neuroscience, the mind is not just the id, the ego, and the superego. It's much, much more than that. And there is no science behind uh, the tripartite personality. And so how can we be sure that the mind is made up of this? You know, there's no way to do that. It's just this philosophical thing. And again, yeah, early psychology was philosophical. But once you start saying that you are a therapy that is based on science, then you have to give those data and that's not really doing that. Another thing I wanted to talk about too was the, the ideographic approach and then nomothetic approach to diagnosing someone. Now, you're probably wondering, why are you putting this in here? Well, Freud was really the first one to sort of focus on both. And there are also key terms I have to learn. So (laughs) these are two uh, key terms that I have to learn. And it is, they have been historically really hard for me to understand. So I'm really going to try to put this in words that are understandable. So the ideographic approach is when a clinician uses their subjective approach. Okay, so this is what Freud did a lot. Uh, to assess the client's problem. You know, so this uses dimensional understanding, which is, you know, think of the autism spectrum disorder. You, you can rate low on it, you can rate high on it, you're still on the spectrum, whereas, you know, bipolar is you, either got out, you don't. And, you know, this is important because it helps us to understand, like, the client's unique perspective and experience so it's really using it's narrowing down on the client to understand their problem the ideographic is really trying to dive into okay what is the what is the client feeling and they can you know and, and this view rate high and low on a lot of different things whereas the nomothetic approach uses the standardized method to assess a person's presenting problem so it's really compare they use the information that they collect and compare it to standardized categories. So there's a uh, standardized test that we use very commonly called the Beck Depression Inventory, the BDI, and it's very popular and so the nomothetic approach would say okay, you scored a 30 on the BDI and a high score according to it is a 35. Therefore, I would say you have anxiety and uh, and really high anxiety. You know, and uh, it's really, this is what we use for the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which we talked about in the first episode, but this is what we use there. It is important too because it allows for us to share general understanding of the disorders and it helps us to communicate with other providers. So it's more of a standardized approach to Classifying someone as opposed to the ideographic one. And Freud used both. Freud mostly used the ideographic to understand the person, but he, st- he started trying to do the nomothetic approach which was to standardize his measure but of course it's really hard to standardize something when all you do is subjective testing. So finally let's talk about Joe. If you remember Joe was our case study that we're going to follow along here throughout this process and um, if you don't remember go back listen to the first episode. I talk about Joe extensively but remember he lost his job. He's a 34 year old male he is drinking a little bit more than normal and he's being isolated. So let's go by each psychodynamic theory and sort of classify Joe's condition. So Young would probably ask about Joe and what he thinks about his boss, his job, his wife, his kids, and really any other important topic. You know, And this will help Jung to understand his archetypes. you know what does he think about this? How can I understand what Joe is thinking? And that's how he would get it. He would glean from that question his understanding of the world. Now, Young will also um, realize that Joe is more introverted than extroverted and suggests to go out more with his friends to find a balance in self-actualization. This is important because Adler would then say that Joe just completely has an inferiority complex. And again, it's just not its not just wanting something that you don't have. Joe is actively striving towards superiority, but feels defeated by not having a job and providing for his family. What, and, and now let's say that Joe is the oldest out of three siblings. Well, what can that tell us about Joe according to Adler? If he's the oldest child, he tends to be more reliable and social, and he is uh, for sure not living up to that theory of his birth order. So there might even be some conflict between his perceived duties as the oldest brother and what he's actually doing. You know, and that brings us to Erickson. You know, Joe is 34 years old. So if you remember the stages of development, that will put Joe in the generativity versus stagnation trait or conflict or however you want to present it. And this is where he starts asking himself again, can I support my family and be productive in society? Well, Joe is actually having a hard time with that and in turn feels stagnant and unproductive. You you sort of start getting a picture of how we conceptualize pathology based on different theories of personality and cognitions. And so finally, uh, Karen I would see his neurotic need. Now let's say that we talk to Joe and he says, I can never do anything right always fail my family i'll never be able to have a job again i'm just worthless well i mean that would be a big problem for joe and he would have the need their neurotic need for protection uh leading him to going away from people hence his isolation so he has this neurotic need of just always giving or like i have to give i have to give and since that's not happening, he's moving away from people. You now Joe's ideal self, this theory of self, is unobtainable. Of course we're going to fail sometimes. That's probably what I would say to him. You know, failure is a normal thing, but what are you going to do about it, you know? And... Because his ideal self is so far away from his real self, he despises himself. And I love that we can start putting this psychological thought from what we've talked about for the first two episodes, psychoanalytic and psychodynamic theories, into case conceptualization. I think this is what I'm learning about, and you get to join me on this ride because... We're now starting to plug in the pieces. Okay, this I'm I'm finally understanding Joe a little bit better now because of all these theorists. And that's why I really love tracking psychology through the years as the thought has progressed because we start getting a better sense of personality from that. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode or episodes. I really don't know how this is gonna be, so <laughs> Uh, but thank you so much for tuning in. If you agreed with something or if you thought that I needed to improve something or you think that I have mistaken something, please let me know. Reach out to me on Instagram at tiredgradstudent. Grad uh, Student. There you can interact with me the best. I are vehemently despise Twitter. And so you're going to have to lose this my because to get a Twitter account. But there you'll find uh, when the next episode is going to come out and all that. But in the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in and study hard.